George Will. The senator probably will win a second term, despite the fact that he deserves to do so. That was six years ago. The senator did win a second term. Today, he's just a few months from leaving public office. A dozen years in the Senate, a dozen years in the House, several years in senior positions in the White House. As he prepares to leave public life, what does he want the rest of us to know about the state of our republic? Rob Portman, the gentleman from Ohio, on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. After growing up in Cincinnati, Robert Jones Portman attended Dartmouth College as a member of the class of 1978, although he graduated with the class of 79 because he took time off to canoe the entire length of the Rio Grande River. He graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in 1984, began practicing law in Washington, D.C., and soon began a career of public service that would last for more than three decades. Senator Portman, welcome. Peter, thanks for having me on again. Actually, I should, I should say thank you. We are meeting in the Hugh Scott Room in the United States yes. Capitol, and you only get to use the Hugh Scott Room if you're a senator, so thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, why did you do it the way you did these last 30 years? You graduated in 1984, as I just mentioned, from a very prestigious law school. You could have stuck with the law. Just the other day, I looked up what partners and big-time <laughs> firms in this town are pulling down these, the, these days. And it's three to six and seven million dollars a year over the last 30 years. You have foregone <laughs> tens, maybe low tens, but tens of millions of dollars in income. Don't tell Jane that, please. <laughs> <laughs> Has it been worth it? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I, I love public service. And actually, when I left Dartmouth in 1979, I started a public service job, which was to work on a presidential congressional commission uh, under the Carter years and then under Ronald Reagan. And uh, we reported under Ronald Reagan. And that was, uh, you know, my sort of opening to public service. And I realized, although you have to go to law school to kind of get ahead in this town that ultimately I wanted to be in public service in one way or another. I didn't know I'd be in elected office, but I did know that so you knew I had a passion for it. Yeah, yeah. All right. You know, let, let me ask the same question, but put it, put it the other way around. I'll flip it. Listen to this. You know this, but listen to this. 1989 to 1993, Associate Counsel and then Director of the Office of Legislative Affairs in the White House of President George H.W. Bush. Yeah. Those are pretty senior positions. 1993, elected to the House of Representatives, from the second congressional district in Ohio, which takes in a big piece of Cincinnati, reelected in 1994, in 1996, in 1998, in 2000, in 2002, and 2004. 2005, United States Trade Representative in the administration of President George W. Bush. 2006, Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, one of the three or four most important jobs in the entire executive branch, also in the administration of President George W. Bush. 2010, elected to the Senate from Ohio. 2016, re-elected to the Senate from Ohio by a margin of more than 21 points. You started in the White House and you've gone up. And every time you have stood before the people of Ohio and asked for their votes, you've won. You have not lost a single election. 
So first I asked whether it was worth it. Now my question is, why are you calling it quits? <laughs> well, it's a good question because I do love what I do and I feel truly honored to have been able to do it. And as I tell my constituents back home, you know, you've given me the opportunity of a lifetime to help serve Ohio and our country and get stuff done. You know, I'm a, I'm a legislator, kind of boring, but you know, I'm, I'm into actually getting things done, finding that common ground, moving the ball forward. And I love that. But having said that, um, it's time, you know, 12 years in the Senate, 12 years in the House, as you said, I think it's about, about time. I also served in both Bush administrations and, and I love the public sector. I love my family. <laughs> I love the opportunity to be back in Ohio full time. Uh, I'm 66 years old, so no spring chicken. And um, don't say such things. <laughs> I think it's time. It's time to try something else. And for me, it's probably going to be a combination of public service in some way, probably uh, helping from the outside to try to encourage the country to move in a more uh, civil, bipartisan way, because I think that's what's necessary right now and it's what's missing. Uh, and then also the private sector, which I love. I look forward to getting back to that. Uh, and then so you'll be practicing law? Perhaps, uh, but you know, I like being on the business side of things rather than the law side better, um, having done both. And uh, we have a family business back home, as you know, the, the historic Golden Lamb Inn, Ohio's most iconic restaurant, it was recently named. And 13 presidents have stayed there, all Republican, by the way. Uh, and I'm proud of that place. And, and my brother's been kind of picking up, you know, the majority of, of the work there. So I'll be able to help more on that. And look, I, I just can't wait to be home and to have more time to, you know, focus on the things that are really important in life, which is family and and faith, and you know, being able to uh, go out to the farm and uh, do a little bush hogging without worrying. I'm going to get a call from my office saying. You know, you, you've got to respond to this pesky reporter right. uh, or whatever. I detect no bitterness, no regret. No, no. You're a contented man. Can, could we talk for a moment or two? You said for a mo just a moment ago, you said you like to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the arc of this career. I asked your staff to give me your top two or three accomplishments in the Senate. Mm -hmm. 13 pages single-spaced is what they gave me. During the, 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 you've sponsored 68 pieces of legislation that were signed by President Obama, 82 signed by President Trump, and in just these two years of the Biden administration, 37 pieces of legislation signed by Joe Biden. And these go, I mean, as I say, they're 13 pages, the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, CHIPS Act earlier this year, tax cut of 20, on and on it goes. And so I thought to myself, well, we're, only going to, we're not going to do this again. You, you're, you're only stepping down from the Senate once. So let's go through this, if you don't mind. And let me ask you your proudest accomplishments at various phases of your career as a way of getting at the way you've approached these jobs, the kind of public servant you've been. So. You were a young but very consequential member of the staff in the White House of George H.W. Bush. Your proudest accomplishment as a 20 and then 30-something member of the White House staff. Well, George H.W. Bush was my mentor. You know, he's the one who I looked up to, a decent, honorable guy. And he moved me from the council's office to the legislative affairs job. And uh, I will be very grateful for that because I really wasn't qualified. Uh, but he, he put me at, at the table. I mean, literally at the meetings with members of Congress, I would sit there with him 
And that was, that was probably the most exciting part. Um, you know, George H.W. Bush uh, was uh, well-liked by the staff and, you know, well-respected uh, by members of Congress. Uh, but he also had this, this passion for, you know, how do you find that middle ground? How do you find the common ground between the right and the left, Republicans and Democrats? For that, he was uh, uh, punished politically, because mm -hmm. remember um, when he said, uh, despite my pledge of no new taxes, I think we need to figure out a way to get this deficit under control. Democrats insisted on raising taxes in exchange for cutting some spending. And uh, he was willing to go along with that. So it was an interesting experience for me. I was proud of him. I, I think he, um, again, was an incredibly effective executive. He'd already been vice president. He knew what he was doing. He was very good on the, on the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. I think extremely effective at dealing with Gorbachev and, and the realities of that uh, seismic shift. Um, but he also was, you know, was a guy who early on said, we got to figure out a way to, to find that common ground. And for that, I think, uh, you know, he, he didn't win re-election. Right. Um, so it was, a, it was a good lesson as well. More than a dozen years in the House of Representatives. What stands out? Well, you know, it's interesting. As I look back on those days, uh, the things that stand out to me are where you kind of can change the culture or change the approach that our country takes to an issue. And By the way, I just want to repeat or note that body has 435 members. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just how you change anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, so is early, early on, um, you know, I was involved on the budget issues and the trade issues and the tax issues. Those were my things. I was on the Ways and Means Committee. But early on, I developed a passion for uh, two things. One was unfunded mandates on the states, and I ended up being the Republican author of the unfunded mandates legislation that actually- You better explain what an unfunded mandate Well, where is. the federal government puts a mandate on state or local government, doesn't pay for it. And um, it, it used to be really out of control. <laughs> People right. think it might be bad now, but we put in place legislation that allowed for the first time ever, and this was uh, sort of a, a big fight within the Congress, at the Rules Committee level, the ability for any member to raise a point of order if there was an unfunded mandate being placed on a state or local government. The result of that was that all of a sudden, unfunded mandates started to disappear because no one wanted to be subject to the point of order and have to explain themselves you know, publicly as to why they were telling their constituents back home, you know, we're going to force you to do this a certain way from the federal government, say an environmental statute, but we're not going to pay anything for it. You're going to have to pay for it. And so that was, that was a change in terms of the attitude between our federalist system, where the federal government had to pull back a little bit rather than dumping things on state and local taxpayers and saying, we know best. So to me, that was very satisfying. And uh, I was part of the contract with America. Uh, thanks to Speaker Gingrich, he put it in there, and we passed it shortly after we got the majority. The second one I'll mention, uh, out, of, out of, you know, I guess maybe 100 or so bills that we got passed during that time period, was with regard to the drug issue. In particular, I took a stance early on that we had to change our focus from the so-called supply side on drugs to right. the demand side. Right. Republicans at that time were very good, in my view, on interdiction of drugs, on going to places like Columbia and helping them um, actually rid themselves of some of their, their drugs, poppy fields and so on, and good on the prosecution side. But where we were missing the boat, in my view, was on the demand side. And therefore, uh, prevention, uh, education, 
um, treatment and longer-term recovery. So I passed into law with, again, Speaker Gingrich's help, something called the uh, Anti-Drug uh, Communities Act, so Drug-Free Communities Act. The Drug-Free Communities Act said that we ought to encourage more prevention and we ought to help let communities start community coalitions around the country that deal with the demand side of this, mm -hmm. not just the supply side. Uh, over 2,000 community coalitions later, including one in my hometown that I founded, uh, we began to shift the emphasis from focusing on the supply side only to saying, yeah, we need to reduce supply, but ultimately what drives this is the demand. It's a very Adam Smith kind of Republican right. approach, I thought. Right. And, and I think so did Speaker Gingrich. And so we were able to accomplish something great. We then passed the Drug-Free Workplace Act, the Drug-Free Media Campaign that allowed these media uh, ads to be run. And we really changed in the 1990s the trajectory, which was at that time the issue was cocaine, marijuana, uh, somewhat heroin, but mostly cocaine. And we really made great progress and reduced substance abuse. Now, it's like the, the ocean, the waves keep coming in, so yes. it never stops. Uh, and then later in the Senate, I was the lead on the legislation uh, called the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act, which took it to the next level, which is to say, not only should we focus on the demand side more, but we should focus more on treating substance abuse as a disease. And what that means is you look at it differently and you put more emphasis on getting people into treatment and recovery, knowing that you can't just lock people up and expect this to go away, that an addiction has to be addressed. So again, not a very Republican approach at the time, but now is fairly well acknowledged, I think, as being the right way to do it. Now we need to ensure that we're coming up with new strategies, because once again, after making tremendous progress, a couple years after our legislation passed, you had a reduction of 22%, for instance, in opioid overdoses really? in Ohio and around the country they were being reduced. Then unfortunately we were hit with COVID and those rates went back up again. And now we need to once again redouble our efforts in terms of focusing on this issue on the demand side and the supply side and also with regard to treating it like a disease, meaning treatment and recovery. Uh, so anyway, that's that's something that I'm, I'm proud of because it shifted people's paradigm and, right. uh, and, and it made a difference. Um, George W. Bush, you served as United States trade rep. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's, that's a position not well understood outside Washington, but it's huge. The lead negotiator for the country on trade. And then you served as director of office of management and the budget, which is the one place where the entire federal budget, I shouldn't say the one place it comes together up here in a couple of committees on the Hill, but in the executive branch, it's the director of OMB who produces this budget and looks at it all and has a chance to try to do sensible things. What, what, what comes to mind there? What are you proud of in those? Well, uh, U.S. Trade Rep's job is uh, actually my favorite job in the sense that I was kind of on my of own. Of all your career? It, it, was, it was pretty interesting, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, and I wouldn't have left except that I was asked to come over to OMB and I remember the conversation and I said, I'm fine where I am. And then the response was, well, no, you don't understand. <laughs> the president would like you to take another job. <laughs> so you have no choice. Um, and OMB was fascinating too in its own way in a real, as you said, it's a difficult job. It's a grind. I had three teenagers at home. It was difficult to balance oh, it. Oh, wow. But on the trade job, I would say the biggest change we made was with regard to China. Um, when I got into the job, I started a top to bottom review of US-China trade policy. It hadn't been done in years, if ever. And, you know, we were able to be tougher on China, and we were sort of ahead of our time in that sense. Um, at that point, you know, we had PNTR in place, but China wasn't. PNTR is. The permanent trade relationship with China, which brought them into the 
world trading system through the World Trade Organization, but China was not following the rules. And so we were able not just to point that out, but to do more enforcement actions than had ever been done before, including taking so, China to the WTO for the first time for a uh, successful case. Just on that, the thinking in this town for years, and I have to admit, I can remember it in the Reagan White House, the thinking in this town for years was that if we bring China into the world trading system, mm -hmm. first they'll free up their economy and experience economic growth, and then eventually, once they achieve a certain level of wealth, the next thing that happens, it happened in South Korea and it happened in Taiwan, was that they'll move toward democracy. Absolutely. And Rob Portman was one of the first people in the town who spotted what was really happening and it wasn't what we hoped or thought or wanted, correct? That's correct. And you know, China has gone through phases. And um, prior to President Xi, I think they were making some progress along those lines. But back when I was U.S. trade rep in 2006, uh, uh, they were uh, unfortunately backsliding on the commitments that they, right. they had made. Then they, I think, put some reforms in place that were actually fairly positive. And now they're back to uh, a much more protectionist approach meaning subsidizing their industries, meaning dumping product in the United States at below its cost. I had been a trade lawyer early in my career in Washington, and so I had some background here and had been on you know, both sides of these trade cases, and I, I just felt strongly that we weren't calling China to account, that we were uh, assuming that there'd be this uh, miraculous transformation, as you'd seen, as you say, in so many other economies where you have liberalized trade, it leads to a more open democratic It worked. System. It was a reasonable hope. Yeah, but, yeah. But, right. but, but they didn't play by the rules, and I think that was important. At OMB, um, one of the jobs is oversight of the agency's departments, which is a, you know, a endless job and unbounded, you know, and that was fascinating. I loved that part of it, but you do have to put together a budget every year. And my big fight was I wanted to prepare a budget in 2007 that was balanced over not 10 years, but five years. You are a dreamer. Uh, I was a dreamer. And there was some opposition to that within the White House and certainly on the Hill. Uh, one of my advocates uh, was a guy named Hank Paulson, who had six months previously been named Secretary of the Treasury. And we'd gotten to know each other and, and uh, had very similar views on this fiscal discipline issue. And thanks to him, frankly, uh, because there was a bit of a fight, we were able to get that done. So I actually proposed a budget that over five years balanced. Now, back then it was relatively easy because the deficit was much smaller and as a percent of the economy, particularly, it was smaller. But and, it the, and that expansion changes. that started way back in the 80s was still taking place. Exactly. The economy right. was strong. 2008 it was when everything changed. But right. Exactly. Right. And I, I left before the 2008, 2009, uh, you know, the Great Recession and all, all the issues that, that happened there. But uh, at that point, we were having uh, good luck in, in raising revenue, and uh, we had the opportunity to trim spending, particularly on the mandatory side, in a way that you could get to a balance in five years. So I was very proud of that. Now, Democrats held both chambers at that point, and they weren't particularly interested in what our views were on the budget. Uh, and so we would have continuing resolutions every year, and that's one reason I didn't stay in that job, because there wasn't much to negotiate at that point. Right, right, all right. This brings us to this body, the United States Senate, a dozen years in the Senate. What can you reduce it to a, a one or two achievements? What are you proudest of here? Well, uh, again, uh, you mentioned, I think we've had 60 some uh, bills passed under President Obama and 80 some under uh, President Trump. 
and then uh, about 40 under this president. So there's been a lot. I, I miss, I guess I'd mention two things. One seems a little obscure, but I think it's really important, and that's how you deal with U.S. companies relative to the international tax system. It's very complicated. I really dug into that. I was the lead on that in the tax reform efforts. And what happened was, by changing the rules to say that we weren't going to disadvantage American companies, which to me means American workers, right. which is really the issue, that we brought more investment back to America that previously was being retained overseas to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and we also made American workers more competitive with their counterparts around the world uh, by increasing production here, manufacturing here, and so on. So the tax bill worked. Um, people say, well, my gosh, you know, big tax cuts and then these deficits. Actually, we had more revenue coming in the year after the tax cuts and cash reform than we did before. So it actually did increase revenue. But most importantly, uh, despite the reductions to individuals' taxes on the global side, international side, business side, we made America more competitive. So I'm proud of that. And that made a difference. Um, Second, I guess I have to mention the infrastructure bill because that was a six-month exercise of sometimes. The infrastructure bill that just passed a single-digit number of months ago. Yes, right. yes, in the, uh, during the Biden administration. But it had been talked about for literally five administrations, including the Bush administration where I had worked, not just the second Bush, but the first Bush administration. And so President Trump had talked about it. You recall he had a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill that he was promoting. Uh, I recall when... Some Democrats went down to the White House once to meet with them on infrastructure for the, uh, to promote, propose a trillion-dollar infrastructure package, roads, bridges, broadband, and so on. And his response was, two trillion. And they came back shocked. Uh, that never happened, but it didn't happen because Congress and the executive branch couldn't get together and hadn't been able to do so. It wasn't President Trump's fault. I mean, it had been something that had not happened literally for five administrations. And people talked about, can't we get back to the days of, you know, Dwight Eisenhower when we started the interstate highway system? Right. Can't we make a serious investment in infrastructure over the long haul? Um, and so when President Biden got elected, he proposed such a bill, so he said. It was called the Infrastructure Act. We looked at it uh, on our side of the aisle and said, this is full of huge new taxes, the biggest tax increase in American history. And much of the spending is not about infrastructure. It's about so-called soft infrastructure. Right. This would be child care, health care, and so on. And so Senator Sinema and I, she's a Democrat from Arizona, looked at this as an opportunity to pull out the core infrastructure, think roads, bridges, railroads, and ports, but also digital infrastructure, broadband. That's mm -hmm. core infrastructure. And just do that part, not all this soft stuff that you might want to do in another bill, but it doesn't belong with infrastructure. And at the same time, take out the tax increases that would hurt American workers. Uh, and by trimming it down and taking out the tax increases, we were able to come together with a compromise. We then went to five Republicans, five Democrats, then 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats, and kind of grew it out from the center out, adding people as we went along. And eventually it passed uh, the U.S. Senate with a more than two-thirds majority. Um, and both the minority leader and the majority leader supported it, and it, it became the law of the land. Now, is it perfect? No, it's not exactly what I would have written, uh, but it does move us forward. Long-term economic growth will depend on that. And uh, for me, one of the passions was we have a bridge in Cincinnati, my hometown that I've right. lived on for literally 25 years, uh, that is obsolete, that's carrying twice the number of 
trucks and cars that it was ever designed to carry that's very dangerous because there's no shoulder anymore, so you're you know inches away from a semi as you go across it. I went across it this morning, kept my fingers crossed the whole time. Uh, Glad it's, you made it. It's truly a problem. It's a traffic jam every morning, every night. Huge economic problem for us because it's where 71 and 75 come together. Finally, that bridge can be fixed now because we put funding into this infrastructure package adequate to deal with some of our major infrastructure headaches like Brent Spence Bridge. Um, so that's not the only reason I, I got involved in the legislation. I got involved because I saw an opportunity to find common ground, but it will help in instances like that to make our economy more efficient. Okay, so here's what I get listening to you. Here's what you didn't say. We just went across three decades, and I didn't hear you say, I gave an especially memorable speech. <laughs> I sponsored legislation that got a splash headline in the New York Times. I moved my state or my party or my caucus in a certain ideological direction. You did talk about reframing the way people think about drug abuse, mm -hmm. but that was to the extent that that was an ideological accomplishment. It was you bumping into certain rough edges of the ideology of your own party. So that's the kind of senator, that's the kind of public servant you haven't been. And here's the kind of public servant you have been. Here's what you said over and over again. I found a Democrat to work with. I found somebody in the administration I could, I found Hank Paulson. I was getting guff from other, all sorts of angles, people in the White House. I found somebody, we worked together. We found out what we could accomplish. All right, so all of this brings us back to, a, to something that's a cliche in a way, but not. It's something basic, I think. And here, you must have, I'm sure you have this, you've heard this a thousand times, Carl Hayden, the great, I think, seven-term senator from Arizona, dead now for half a century, but Carl Hayden said, if you want to get ahead here in the United States Senate, if you want to get ahead here, you have to be a workhorse and not a show horse. And Rob Portman has been a workhorse and proud of it, correct? Yes. All right. Yes. Now here's a second quotation. This comes from Yuval Levin's book of a year or two yeah. ago, yeah. A Time to Build. Yuval says, today legislators, Carl Hayden's 50 years ago, today legislators seek, quote, a prominent role in the theater of our national politics. And they view the institution of Congress as a particularly prominent stage in that theater, a way to raise their profiles, to become stars in the world of cable news or talk radio, to build bigger social media followings, and to establish themselves as celebrities. That has never interested you. As far as I can tell, we've known each other a long time. That just hasn't interested you. But here's the question. Is that now the way to get ahead in the U.S. Senate? Carl Hayden said, if you want to get stuff done, be a workhorse. And Yuval Levin says, legislators now want to become celebrities. Is that sheer vanity or is that now a necessary part of doing the job? Well, I think you've... Analyze it pretty well. Uh, look, I don't know that it's a necessary part of doing the job because there are, are plenty of workhorses here who don't focus on the cable shows and, and you know don't give fiery speeches on the floor, don't throw out the red meat on the right or the left, but instead focus on finding common ground 
because you have to get 60 votes in the Senate for just about anything. Uh, and I think that's good, by the way. I support the filibuster because of that. This is helping our democracy to achieve things that are sustainable, bipartisan, as opposed to jerking back and forth between extremes, which mm -hmm. is what would happen otherwise. That's an aside. So I think, I think there are plenty of members uh, who continue to be workhorses. You don't hear much about them, uh, but they're quietly getting things done that are very important for the people they represent. My view is really pretty simple, and I've had this since I got involved in public service. I think it's an honor to serve because you get to make a difference in people's lives. So it shouldn't be about you, it should be about them. And I think that your job is really pretty simple, which is you were hired to get something done to make people's lives better. You weren't hired to, to be a, star. a talk show host um, and, uh, and be a star. Now, on the other hand, honestly, uh, Peter, I think the ascendancy of Barack Obama and then the ascendancy of Donald Trump lead some people to believe that it's celebrity status that is necessary to be able to achieve, you know, the highest political office, which is presidency. And there's an argument that with that kind of celebrity status, you know, you can, you can then get things done in a more effective way because you can move your party with you or your team with you. Um, but I think your job as a senator, unless you aspire for the highest office, which many do, as you know, ought to be, how do you find that common ground between yourself and your colleagues on the other side? I tend to go to more mainstream Democrats, although I've worked with a number of them that on certain issues are quite mainstream. Ben Cardin, for instance, one of my best friends of in the Maryland. Senate. We've done more on retirement security than has been done, you know, for decades around here. And we've done four bills together for over 25 years. We've got another one right now that helps people save more through their IRAs and their 401ks and helps small businesses be able to have a 401k for their employees very important stuff for my constituents, so, but not the sort of thing that lends itself to a, a controversial talk so, show host, you know, uh, a, a, rel a related question. Yeah. Back in the days of the first of the elder Bush, when you served in his administration, journalism was one thing. And I can remember having a meeting with David Gergen. This is in the Reagan White House, but George Bush was vice president. And Gergen, the communications director, had in his office a television that H.R. Haldeman had had built in the Nixon years. Yeah. And it was two little screens and one big screen. Yeah. And that was so he could watch all three newscasts at right. night. Right. Three network news programs, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, sometimes the LA Times, those were what mattered. Yeah, yeah. And on the, re the reporting, there was a certain amount of reporting in all these newspapers, particularly the Washington Post, reporting on politics as a game, who's up, who's down. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the leaks from all sorts of places right. in the White House and elsewhere, all right. That took place. But there was also, I don't want to sound too pompous. I don't want to sound even more pompous than I usually do. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but there was serious reporting on the kinds of things a parliamentary change that has big implications for a major technique the federal government uses to enact its will, to enforce its will on states. That yeah. would have been a big story in the old days. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the nature of journalism is now, it's not just cable television, where of course, segment by segment, there, how do we get the audience, how do we sustain the audience to the next commercial? They're in a straightforward business 
they need the they need the eyeballs. Yeah, sure. But even in the print press now, uh, in major newsrooms, they have screens at what what articles are trending, who's getting the most eyeballs, minute by minute by minute. So I'm just trying to think through. It feels as though the nature of journalism, first of all, journalism is one of the incentives that members of this chamber face. Mm -hmm. I need votes. I need my people to understand what I'm doing. I've got to get on television. I've got to get in the news. And somehow the nature of journalism has changed in a way that, that creates bad incentives instead of good ones. I'll give you a specific example of that. I couldn't agree with you more. When I started, uh, uh, so it was 12 years ago in the Senate, uh, there were several people from Ohio who were here in Washington as stringers uh, reporting on what we were doing in Washington. When I was in the House, there were 12 people from Ohio. The Cleveland Plain Dealer used to be a great newspaper. They had right? three people here at one point and then right. two. Now they have one, but guess what? She is the only reporter from Ohio currently following Washington, here in Washington. One. Wow. That's it. That's wow. it. So. Wow. That, I guess, is in a nutshell what has happened is that their business model has not worked. They've lost advertisers, I suppose. Uh, so they've changed their approach to the point that they really don't follow what we're doing here. When I try to get uh, the press to follow what we're doing in terms of these bipartisan issues, it's very difficult. I remember one day I was going to a press conference with Democrat Claire McCaskill to announce the, uh, the conclusion of negotiations on a permitting reform package, Joe Manchin's uh, brought that issue back to light now. Uh, this was after working on it for many years. We finally had an agreement between the Building Trades Union, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, an environmental group. We were going to actually be able to get a green light to make things, make things in this country more quickly and uh, you know, to construct a bridge more quickly and to build office buildings more quickly. And it was, it was a, a big deal. It was a big deal. And it still is. It's, it, it established what's called the Permitting Council that's still in effect. Um, I could not get a reporter to come. And I literally ran into a high reporter on my way there, and I said, this is actually pretty big news. You might want to follow me. And she said, you know what? Um, my editors just don't care. <laughs> you know, we're going we're to follow a political story today instead. So this is what, uh, if you're a legislator focused on results, you, you, have, uh, you have to acknowledge that you're not going to get much coverage because if it's not controversial, if you're just getting something done, that doesn't sell apparently. So what you have to do is rely on your, your own media, and that's fine. I mean, we do a lot of social media. At one point, I, was, I had more tweets going out than any other member of the Senate, but they were all about policy, and most of the time, you know, accompanied with a lot of very negative tweets afterwards on politics. But at least I knew I was getting it out to some in the reporting class and to some right. of my constituents. And so that's what you have to do, is you have to kind of do your, do your own thing, let people know what you're up to, and then during a campaign, um, I ran ads in my last campaign. You mentioned we won by 21 points in Ohio, which is true. But we, we won because we had accomplished things for the people of Ohio. Right. Human trafficking, Lake Erie, uh, the opioid crisis, uh, the economic growth issues I mentioned. And we specifically did ads. We didn't do any attack ads. We did ads about what we had actually accomplished. And so you can, the ways you can communicate it, but you have to raise a lot of money. Now it's your to do job. That. You can't rely on, on the independent media. Right. It's just not there anymore. All right. um, institutions. We've talked about your career. We've talked about what you've done. Now, if we may, I'd like to talk about what you've seen. And let's begin with the Senate. 
I'll give you, here's, here's I, I found this quote, 19th century quotation, which was the received wisdom about the Senate, certainly when you and I were undergraduates at Dartmouth College. And until, in some ways, and until almost the day before yesterday, it seems. Here we go. This is somebody called Massachusetts Senator George Frisbee Hoare. The Senate was created that the deliberate will, the sober second thought of the people might find expression. I think that's just beautifully put. It was intended that it should resist the hasty, intemperate, passionate desire of the people. This hasty, passion, and intemperance is frequently found in the best of men as in the worst. But when it is excited, the Senate will resist it. All right, that's 19th century. Here's much more recent, and this is from the memoir of the late Congressman John Dingell, who served for so many years, it's hard to imagine that he's actually not here anymore. The framers required that all states, big and small, have two senators. The idea that Rhode Island needed two US, two US senators to protect itself from being bullied by Massachusetts emerged under a system that governed 4 million Americans. Today, in a nation of more than 325 million and 37 additional states, it's downright dangerous. Sparsely populated, usually conservative states can block legislation supported by a majority of the American people. That's just plain crazy, close quote. John Dingell's been dead for a long time, but this argument that the Senate is by its very nature illegitimate is all over the place these days. And how do you reply? Well, I, I liked John Dingell. I got to work with him. Um, I respect him. And by the way, he was a bipartisan legislator. By the way, can career. I get you to call anybody a son of a bitch? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you hit the right name. Yeah, I will, for sure. Right. But, uh, but I disagree with him. I mean, first of all, uh, the founders set the Senate up initially to be not just six-year terms rather than two-year terms, uh, but to be state legislatively elected. We were elected by our state legislature. So it was meant to be this uh, cooling off body. You know, the famous story with Washington and Jefferson, you pour the tea into the saucer cup and that's the Senate to cool the tea. Right. Um, so it wasn't just that there'd be two from each state, that was more of a federalism compromise. Um, by the way, the Senate, I think with its 50-50 <laughs> House uh, is, you know, sort of goes back and forth, but we're squarely, I think, with where the American people is right now, where it's a 50-50 country, we're 50-50 Senate. Right. Um, so I don't think that's accurate. But having said that, I think the most important thing is that over time, there has developed this practice that you need 60 votes, not just a mere majority. Explain that. This is a next question. Of course, this is yep. an obvious question. The filibuster, yep. can you just, this is a, a public policy 101. Just explain what on earth is the filibuster? Somehow we have it in our, I mean, what I picture is during the civil rights legislation, so Southern senators getting up and reading the, the wasn't there a famous- Yeah, reading the phone book. Strom Thurmond actually read the phone book <laughs> yeah. and managed to keep talking for 24. Yeah. That was what a filibuster was when somebody actually stood up yeah. and used his right to unlimited debate to hold up a piece of legislation. It doesn't work that way anymore. No, people don't filibuster anymore, but what they do is um, insist that we use the 60 vote margin for most everything now, with the exception of nominations, as you've seen. Uh, under Harry Reid, they stopped requiring 60 votes for the nominations for judges, as an example, except for the Supreme Court. Republicans came in and then said, also the Supreme Court. So now all judges and other executive branch personnel 
can be passed out of the Senate with, with 50 votes plus one. The, the 60 vote rule is because anybody could, Im there's a kind of permanent implicit threat to filibuster. Right, right. If anybody did filibuster, a vote of cloture to shut him up it's would 60 require vote, 60 votes. 60 vote margin, so it, yeah. That's become so common yeah. that now it's just assumed you need 60 votes. Exactly. To get anything. That's, exactly. that's the way it works. Yeah. It has so worked out. The cloture right. vote of 60 votes is what uh, people fall back on. Um, I would make the strong argument that it is not anti-majoritarian. It is pro-democracy in the sense that by requiring 60 people to come together in the Senate rather than just 50 plus one, if you have the uh, presidency, that you require that legislation be more obviously bipartisan, more uh, reliable and sustainable, so you aren't going back and forth. I mentioned the pendulum swinging on yes, issues like yes. health care or like taxes. You would have the majority doing one thing and then two years later, majority doing something else. Um, and it requires even in the House of Representatives for people to think about a legislation that might be viewed as too extreme. When I was in the House, as an example, uh, I was a significant legislator, so I was thinking about this a lot and thinking, okay, it's great if we can pass this bill in the House, but how do we get it through the Senate? We have to find 60 votes in the Senate. By the way, Republicans have never had 60 votes in the Senate. Democrats have only had it very rarely, including under Barack Obama briefly, when they passed the Obamacare legislation. So we shouldn't think of it as a filibuster. We should think of it as the bipartisanship rule. It's a bipartisanship rule. It almost rule. always forces yeah. you to get yeah. two parties, some members of both parties. Yeah, and some members. And, it, you know, again, uh, I've passed a lot of bills this way, but you can find, you know, 10 Democrats along with all Republicans or 10 Republicans with all Democrats. So you don't need everybody. But typically what you want is something more like the infrastructure bill. We had, you know, roughly 35 on each side uh, voting for it. And in the end, we had more Democrats and Republicans on filibusters. So that's, you know, it was it was more than 35 Democrats. But there were more than half of the Republicans were supporting it, too. And you end up with something that I think makes more sense for the country. It still has to be passed in the House. Uh, it still has to be signed into law by a president. So they still have significant say in this. And the presidents uh, over time have vetoed plenty of bills that have come out of the Senate with 60 votes. You have to get the two thirds vote to override that right. veto in the House right. and the Senate. But my, my point is for those who are now saying the filibuster is anti-democratic, I would, I would I'd be very cautious. I mean, it's true that Democrats are in a situation right now where with the vice presidents breaking the tie, they could get a lot done. What they want to do on gun control or abortion or taxes, tax increases or health care. But, but watch out what you wish for, because a couple years from now, it could be the shoe on the other foot. And you would see, again, the exact opposite. And again, moving or back as early and forth, as, as early as next January, it's not there's some polls that show that it's not out of the realm of possibility that Republicans might narrowly recapture the, Absolutely. the, the chamber Absolutely. this November. Yeah. yeah, we would do the same thing. Now, we'd, we'd be subject to a veto over the next two years, but after that, who knows? And right. um, so I think, it's, I think it's smart for us to continue to view the Senate as a place where we have to try to find compromise and find that common ground. And if you take this away, again, you're going to have legislative uh, issues swinging back and forth, <laughs> and that's bad for it would give, the, 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 would the, give the political class in Washington the right to yank around the rest of the country. Yep, yep, yep. All right. yep. And I, I, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to hold. One of the concerns I have about this election coming up, Peter, that's not talked about enough in my view, 
is that it's not just about who has the majority in the Senate. Right now it's a 50-50 Senate. Some think Republicans will gain the majority, as you said. It just requires one seat, after all. So let's say we won a seat in Georgia and kept the other seats. Uh, it could also go the other way. The Democrats could pick up one seat. The Democrats are telling me if they pick up two seats, uh, which is not impossible, given the fact that we have more Republicans running than Democrats this year, um, and it's the, the, the climate is uncertain, pick up two seats, what they're most excited about is not having the majority, which they already have, but doing away with the filibuster. Because there were only two Democrats who dared stand up against Joe Manchin and your friend Kirsten Sinema. Kirsten Sinema. Yeah. And this is despite the fact only several years ago, during President Trump's administration, over 60 of us signed a letter, including me, saying we are not interested in getting rid of the filibuster, which included about 30 Democrats, I don't have the exact number. Because at that time, it was the it was then chief executive, President Trump, who said, President oh, Trump. Well, what's the point of this filibuster? Yeah. Yeah. He, he wanted us to do away with it, and a bunch of us stood up. Now, all but two of those Democrats who signed the letter are now saying, forget that. Now that we have President Biden, we want to get rid of the filibuster. So I, I think it's not principled. I, I think it's bad for the country. Um, and I, my hope is that they will not prevail. Mm. The House and Senate alike. Congress, the legislative branch as an institution. Take a look, if you would, at this chart. You've got the three branches set up by the Constitution. You've got the cabinet offices, and then you've got endless names here of independent agencies, mm -hmm. regulatory agencies. Mm -hmm. I say independent. They're different legal regimes under which they operate. Mm -hmm. But, well, let me just, here's a quotation from someone called Jeffrey Tucker of the Brown Stone Institute. The lower two thirds of this chart is increasingly the government as we know it, and its power is unaccountable. Jeff, Jeffrey Bergner of the University of Virginia, since the 1970s, I think Congress has become hopelessly inefficient and ineffective. There is in the Constitution a notion of non-delegation. It's the Congress that's supposed to be responsible for passing all legislation. This has long since ceased to be the case. Close quote. The Congress of the United States, to which you have devoted the prime years of your life, although you still look pretty good. Uh, I say this because we're only months apart in age, of course. The Congress of the United States, to which you've devoted much of your life, has abdicated responsibility to the permanent bureaucracy or the deep state. I agree. I agree. So we mentioned You're earlier. Supposed to cheer me up a little. <laughs> well, here's here's one solution, which is bipartisan. It's a bill that uh, Senator Warner, who's a Democrat, and I have proposed over the years, and it says that Mark Warner, agencies, Virginia. Mark Warner, Virginia, right. mm -hmm. says that independent agencies should be subject to the same regulatory reform, regulatory review process as an executive branch agency, because these. Independent agencies think of all the alphabet suits, you know, the FECs and FTCs and SECs and so on. They are not subject to those rules so that they're able to regulate in ways uh, that often is taking power uh, from the executive branch and significantly from the congressional branch, from the legislative branch. Um, so we think they should be subject to the rulemaking. You know, this is the OIRA function, uh, which is a function within the Office of Management and Budget. OIRA stands um, for? Independent Agency, in, Independent Agency, Office of Independent uh, Regulatory and Something Affairs. All right. So it is a place where you look at new regulations. You say, you know, this meets the uh, cost-benefit analysis or doesn't. 
And often these independent agencies put rules out there that have uh, huge costs and relatively small benefits in my view. And they're, again, usurping this power, but also acting almost in a, in a rogue fashion. So I think they should be brought in to this process. Um, they are not now because technically they're independent. So I, I think that's part of the answer. Part of the answer also is for Congress to legislate with more precision. And right now we've passed legislation often that is very broad and give enormous powers to the agencies to be able to implement the legislation. We should instead be saying, okay, this is our intent, clear intent, and writing more prescriptive legislation. Uh, it requires us to do more work here, to have more experts here, but that's how the founders intended it. They didn't intend unelected representatives to decide big issues. There's a case recently about uh, the EPA, EPA versus West Virginia that came out that is pulling that back. So the Supreme Court has stepped in and said, you know what, Congress did not delegate all these powers you know, to the EPA to be able to regulate at the state level. That should be something that is done by the states or, or by the elected representatives so themselves. Would you agree that there's an opportunity here? I, I'm trying to talk you into sticking around. <laughs> the current composition of the Supreme Court could argue about their, on this position, that position, the abortion position, set that aside. On non-delegation, on the responsibilities of Congress and on what should be the much more limited responsibilities of that vast sprawl of agencies that lie mm -hmm. south of this building. There's an opportunity to get There's work definitely, done. Definitely an Because the Supreme Court is now in a mood to yeah. backstop it. Isn't that yeah, right? Absolutely. And there are a couple of, of doctrines. I will say this is the Chevron doctrine, probably cases where the court has decided how much power the agency has to interpret its own rules, for instance. Um, but my strong view is this needs to come back to Congress because we're the elected representatives. We should do our work. Uh, it requires, again, more time and effort. There are some who say that our economy and our society generally is so much more complicated today right. that it's impossible for Congress to do this job. I, I feel that the answer to that is to provide Congress with the wherewithal to do it and to you know, be held accountable for it because these agencies are not held accountable. So I, I think the court, uh, the Auer Doctrine, the Chevron Doctrine, um, they look at their own precedent, I think they're going to continue to say, you know what, this is really a function of the legislative branch, not the unaccountable executive branch agencies. Right. From Congress to the State of the Republic, and I have in mind again this broad sweep of more than three decades, what you've seen. The budget. In 2007, when you were director of OMB, the an annual federal spending was 2.8 trillion. Mm -hmm. You probably have all this memorized. 2.8 trillion or 19% of GDP. Today, federal spending has more than doubled to 6 trillion or 26% of GDP. In 2007, again, when you were running the federal budget, the federal debt stood at 9.2 trillion or 63% of GDP. And if Congress had had the wits to enact your budget, it would have begun to decline. Today, the debt has more than tripled, more than tripled to 30.8 trillion or 135% of GDP. Under Republican and Democratic presidents alike, under Republican and Democratic majorities on the Hill alike, Spending just keeps rising. 
Why? Why? What can be done? Well, three thoughts. One, I think economists who at one time were worried about deficit spending and said deficits matter um, were thought to have been proven wrong because these huge deficits and the accumulation of debt didn't seem to be affecting our economy. In fact, until the pandemic, as you know, we had a, a, a growth spurt where we had the lowest unemployment we'd had historically uh, uh, for many groups and overall very, very low, 3.5%. We had wage growth 3% or more per this month for so-called 19 new months. monetary theory. The fiscal policy exactly. doesn't matter. And by yeah. the way, neither does monetary yeah, policy. Monetary policy doesn't seem to affect flood it. the system with liquidity. Yeah. The economy keeps growing and inflation stays low. And we were the cleanest dirty shirt in the closet, meaning that America was viewed as a, a country that despite our debt, which is relatively high compared to other countries, not as high as Japan as a percent of the economy, not as high as some other countries, but, but relatively high debt, we seem to be doing the best in terms of entrepreneurship. So foreign capital still came in. Lots of capital, right? yeah. And the, and the tax change has helped a lot, by the way, in bringing investment back here, uh, investment coming to the United States to take advantage of the immediate write-off, as an example, the lower rates, and so on. Anyway, so I think that's, that's one of the issues, is that for those of us who are uh, more fiscal hawks, it's tough to make the argument sometimes. Uh, second, uh, the mandatory spending is where you see this huge increase. Right. So mandatory spending simply means that it's on autopilot and it's spending for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and a few other programs uh, add to that, and interest on the debt, which Congress doesn't appropriate every year. That is based on the eligibility for the program. So if you're eligible for Medicare, you get the funding. And those are the third rail of American politics, the electrified rail in the New York subway system. You grab it and you're dead, traditionally. So that's the political reality, is that the spending you're talking about is driven uh, almost exclusively in terms of the increase in spending relative to GDP by the mandatory the, side. Right. So in the 1960s, it was you know roughly 25% of spending. Now it's roughly 70% of spending is mandatory. Think about that. So and that continues to grow. So it's a fastest growing. It's part another species of Congress budget. putting things on autopilot. Yeah, 70% exactly. of the budget. Exactly. We don't worry about. It. Yeah, we, we don't, don't. We don't affect. Right. And the biggest part of what remains is defense spending, where Republicans want to ensure that we continue to have the ability to project force and that we keep a competitive advantage relative to China, and Russia and other places. So. That's sacrosanct, too, in a sense, and I think should be. So it's a relatively small amount that you're working with, agencies and departments, uh, and that spending can be reduced, no question about it. It can be more efficient, but it won't solve the problem. It's a little like global warming. If you don't solve the problem in China and India and Brazil and elsewhere, you're not going to solve the overall problem. So, um, And then third, I would say there are some proposals out there that might be worth talking about for a second. Uh, I'm not suggesting they're going to be immediately helpful, but there's something called the Trust Act. It's bipartisan. Angus King and Mitt Romney have supported it. They're the, the primary authors. I'm a supporter. There are probably seven Democrats, seven Republicans now. And it's to take every one of these trusts, every one of these uh, social security highway trust, trust, highway trust social fund, security, right. security trust fund, Medicare trust fund, and to do an analysis of it and come up with recommendations, take it back to Congress for an up or down vote. My, my own view is that Social Security is the place to begin. Uh, because begin? To begin. Because although it has a lot of political <laughs> uh, uh, issues connected to it, it's also one where it's a matter of math. You know, healthcare costs are difficult to contain without a lot of policy changes. With Social Security, it's a matter of what should the formula be? You know, how much payroll tax should you pay? What should the age be? 
And I think we could come up with something that would keep Social Security solvent uh, into the future, much as Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan did, right. rather than uh, this trust fund going insolvent in 2032, 2033, 2034, depending on the analysis. But very soon, uh, you would see a 24% reduction in people's Social Security spending unless you make a change. So my hope is that's the one and uh, that we start with. And you know it's not gonna be easy. On the other hand, if you take care of people who are currently retired or near retirement, and you're talking about the future, most young people don't think they're ever gonna be able to receive Social Security because they get it. They look at these numbers. They're smart. <laughs> right. And so I think this is one where we have a great opportunity to make a change for the future. Drug abuse, in particular op opioids. The Center for Centers for Disease Control, CDC, publishes figures that, as far as I can work out, go back to 1999. In that year, again, 1999, about 18,000 Americans died of overdoses. By 2020, that figure had risen to almost 92,000. Over that period, the rate of overdose deaths per 100,000 Americans rose from 1.5 to 13.3. And in Ohio, between 1999 and 2016, the rate rose from 1.5 to 33. This is horrifying. Very we hear a great deal about yeah. deaths of despair. Is it is yeah. we have in the southwestern part of your state, that's country that used to be industrial and mm -hmm. is deindustrial. Is that what's going on? People just don't have jobs, so they turn to drink and opioids, or uh, what is happening here? Well, it's a much longer discussion. And as you know, I've been working on this issue for Pretty 25 much. years yes, or so, right. including uh, starting my own anti-drug coalition back home that's still very active. I was, I chaired it for nine years. I was on the board before I ran for the Senate. Um, I, so I'm, I'm very discouraged by these numbers. But one thing you didn't say is that in Ohio and most other states, in 2017 and 2018 and 2019, we saw something very interesting, which we saw the numbers begin to shift. I mentioned there was a 22% decrease in overdose deaths in one year in Ohio. That was 2018. And then COVID blew it all apart. COVID came in and blew it all apart, partly because people couldn't have access to their you know, training session with a uh, recovery coach, uh, you know, where you had somebody else who had been through this and could help them through it. Um, they couldn't get the treatment that they needed. Um, they couldn't go to a longer-term recovery setting because people were not, you know, coming into group settings and, and despair and uh, losing their job and uh, family members, you know, uh, passing because of COVID. So there was a lot of factors. And as I've probed experts, everybody has a little different perception of it. But the fact is COVID took the rates back up. During that time period, something else happened, which goes against what I said earlier about let's focus on demand, not just supply, because we're Republicans, we're conservatives. We believe that you got to deal with the demand side, of course, not just the supply, because it will be this insatiable demand uh, for these drugs unless we focus on that. But the supply side expanded dramatically in 2021, 2022. This is fentanyl? This is fentanyl, primarily. Although all drugs are coming across the southern border, cocaine, heroin, meth, but the big change is that instead of this opioid called fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid coming in mostly from China directly to the United States through the mail system, and I wrote the legislation called the Stop Act to stop that, it worked pretty well to the point that now it they're coming in through whack-a-mole. Right. So right. we stopped it here. Now it's coming in through Mexico. 
And just yesterday, there was a young man, apparently an American, but uh, at a border checkpoint who was found with enough fentanyl pills you know, taped to his, his legs to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. Um, so these drugs are flowing across the southern border now to the point that it makes it less expensive on the streets of Cincinnati or Columbus or Cleveland or your town, wherever it is. So the demand side is the most important single thing, but the supply matters. And we've got to tighten up the southern border, not just because of the unprecedented numbers of illegals coming across, but because of the unprecedented amount of drugs that's flowing, surging across the border now. And Mexico is changing this formula. They're making into pills that look like Xanax or look like Percocet or look like Adderall. And people are taking these pills, buying them on the street, unfortunately, and it's killing and, a lot. And it's killing them because they're heavy, heavily laced with, with fentanyl. So uh, the message clearly is don't ever buy any drug except in a pharmacy that's approved. <laughs> Otherwise, you're risking your, your life. I gave a speech at Ohio State's graduation uh, this year. And a week before I gave the speech, uh, two Ohio State students were killed uh, taking Adderall, so they thought, apparently, um, laced with fentanyl. So, Peter, the answer is elusive because it's, it's a lot of different factors, but at a minimum, we've got to do a better job on the demand side, the treatment and recovery side, and the education side. I want a national campaign on this issue of these, of these pills because they're, they're a scourge and they're an epidemic. But second, we do have to do something on the supply side. And this is where I'm so frustrated with the Biden administration not getting control of the border. Uh, the American family. 1995, the proportion of kids under 18 who lived in single parent homes was about one quarter. Today, that's up to one third. The out of wedlock birth rate today is over 70% among African-Americans, over 50% among Hispanics, and almost a third among whites. The government has tried. Transfer programs, after-school programs, tax credits, and it hasn't worked. The American family I suppose you could say, well, we're redefining the family. All right, maybe so. But what it looks like, what you have to say for sure is that the notion of the nuclear family, where two parents raise kids until the kids go leave home, is dissolving. And um, it's hard to think of a government program that can set things right if a kid has been raised by single parents. Still worse, if a kid has been raised by single parents, forced to attend a school that doesn't function because teachers' unions won't permit a charter school in that district in a neighborhood where drugs are... All right, you get the picture. Mm -hmm. These are serious problems that seem somehow or other to, to lie beyond the reach of government. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, all right. culture is a difficult thing to, to change, but government policies sometimes encourage certain behavior. You mentioned the transfer payments. Um, so um, if you are attaching to each child a transfer payment and you have more children, then it's a benefit. Uh, you know, I think we have looked at that issue in relative to welfare reform and made some changes and allowed the states to have much more of a say in that. I think it helped. Again, I look back at what, what has worked. <laughs> right. And in 2018, again, what worked was more on the drug issue, more prevention, more treatment, more recovery, and we actually had a nice drop off. Then it shoots back up again during the pandemic. What has worked in terms of 
welfare reform and in terms of providing the proper incentives for, for families. You realize that that test, what has worked as opposed to what sounds good, sets you apart from some large number of your colleagues on well, this. Well, yeah, I, I don't know that, but I think a lot, often we don't spend much time talking about that. Yeah. As an example, um, teen pregnancies, unwed mothers, um, we've made tremendous progress there as a country. And it happened partly because of an education campaign, uh, partly because of you know federal funding and and uh, you know providing an incentive for uh, women not to get into that position. I mean that's that's a success story that's never talked about. Right. Um, just as some of the success stories dealing with uh, people's health care and disease, not just here in this country but globally, we've made tremendous progress here. Which is a Bill Bill, Bill Gates's point is that you know things are like they're going to hell in a handbasket, but look at what we've done in terms of, uh, of the AIDS epidemic um, here in America, uh, also PEPFAR nationally or globally. So PEPFAR is the, it's the, it's the AIDS, AIDS aid program. Sorry, go ahead. I yeah. can't remember. The, I can't begin to remember what the acronym stands well, for. Well, it's, it's the program that George W. Bush, uh, as a Republican, um, started to try to uh, help encourage other countries around the world to use these medications to get people um, so that they weren't dying of AIDS, but could live with it. Right. And the presidential initiative uh, that made a huge difference. But anyway, my, my point is, let's look at what, what works. In terms of the, the broader cultural issue, though, the family is the building block, right? And government can, can never replace that, but government can come up with better policies to encourage it. Okay, one, one more sort of policy area. Defense. Couple of quotations here. Secretary of State, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in a 2020 address, what's happening now isn't Cold War 2.0. The challenge of resisting the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, is in some ways more difficult. This Cold War with China is tougher than the Cold War with the Soviet Union. That's because the CCP is already enmeshed in our economies, in our politics, and in our societies in ways the Soviet Union never was. Quotation two, this is from author Gordon Chang, and this is in an interview just a couple of weeks ago. One year ago, China issued a statement saying that when they invaded Taiwan, not if, but when, the island would fall within hours and the U.S. would not help. The Chinese believe that disarray in the Western coalition really means that coalition is ineffective, and I think the Chinese believe they can do what they want. Close quote. Perhaps the most important aspect of the brutal, illegal, totally unjustified war in Ukraine is that it brought the West back together. And I'd use the West uh, in the broadest sense. And you'd include Japan. I would include Japan South and Australia Korea, and New Australia Zealand and South sure, Korea right. and Singapore. Right. Uh, I mean, it's incredible what, what has happened. So you have 50 countries that have provided weapons to Ukraine. I don't know if 50 will provide weapons to Taiwan, but some will. Uh, including the United States, in my view, um, to be able to defend themselves. But the point is, I think Putin thought he was going to divide NATO. In fact, he brought NATO together, and actually Finland and Sweden coming into NATO makes it even stronger, not weaker. So I, I think the world has mobilized in ways that no one expected. And in America, to our credit, although we've been imperfect in how we've done this, you know, I wanted to do more earlier on, but we have been, uh, as John F. Kennedy once famously uh, wrote, uh, the watchguards on the walls of world freedom. We've been the leaders. And that, uh, I think China must look at and think, 
maybe our analysis wasn't correct, even if that was what they thought previously. Maybe if we do this, people will see that this is also unjustified, illegal, and certainly brutal because the Taiwanese so, people are going to fight back. So there's a kind of um, feeling in the air. Well, compared to the 1980s, when you and I were both kids in this town, the United States is richer, a lot richer. <laughs> from 1985, our per capita GDP in constant dollars, constant dollars has grown from 35,000 to 61,000, an increase of 74%. This country does know how to create wealth. Mm -hmm. But in all kinds of other ways, family life, drug use, the state of our schools, our standing in the world, the competence of the government, the United States is worse off today than it was when you got your job in the administration of George H.W. Bush. Do you buy that? Do you feel, does this feel like the last days of Rome or Berlin between the wars or our best days behind us? No, absolutely not. And American people are incredibly resilient, uh, but also entrepreneurial, hardworking. Uh, when given the chance, uh, people do pretty darn well on their own. Doesn't mean government doesn't have a role to establish the parameters, the, you know, the, the, the structure for success. Government has a huge role. Uh, but it does mean that uh, we are very blessed to live in a country where, you know, people are willing to take a risk and grow something for themselves and their family, but also for others. Uh, I saw my dad do this. He was, uh, you know, a young guy uh, in his late 30s, started his own business, lost money the first few years and uh, had five employees. My mom was the bookkeeper, ended up with a company of almost 300 people. And why? What motivated him? Helping those people to develop their careers and to help their families. And that's still out there. That's the America I grew up in. That's the America that I think is still there. So, you know, with all of the bad news, <laughs> there's plenty of it, and all the dysfunction we see in government, uh, the American people uh, are incredibly strong and, uh, uh, and able, through their own devices, to be able uh, to make progress for our country. Because, again, the building block of our country is our families. Uh, the second building block is our communities and how we work together. And government has a limited but important role, but um, I'm ultimately optimistic about where we're headed. I think our, our biggest challenge right now is the fact that we can't seem to get out of our own way um, in terms of the polarization and, and dividing our country. I think still the vast majority of Americans are, are in the middle, helping neighbor to neighbor, you know, when there's a disaster and, and you know, watching out for people. But there is this, this issue we've got to resolve, which is, making fellow Americans an enemy. We can have opposing political views, that's fine. But I think what social media has done and what cable TV has done is it's whipped up this frenzy on one side or the other that makes it more difficult to solve our problems in America and to make progress. So that's, that's the bigger issue that I see, that we have to, we have to calm things down a little bit. Uh, and I don't think COVID helped, by the way. I think COVID made it more challenging in many respects. But uh, it, it, as long as we can figure out how to talk to each other and continue to have that, you know, that national um, sense of pride in our country and who we are, we'll be fine. Last questions. Two quotations here. One is Senator Rob Portens speaking on the Senate floor in December 2018 to mark the death of President George H.W. Bush. Quote, President Bush brought, brought me into his White House uh, when I was a young man trying to figure out my way in life. And I would not be in this crazy business of politics, but for him. 
not just because he gave me opportunities to work for him, but because he showed me that you could do this work of public service and politics with honor and dignity and respect. He showed that nice guys can finish first. <laughs> Second quotation, the Washington Post's Dan Baltz writing about you. Portman was not built for these political times, close quote. <laughs> Senator, American politics has become permanently cruder and nice guys can no longer finish first. The gentlemen are gone. I just respectfully disagree. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, we were able to prevail in our last election, but um, you know, I, I've been fortunate, I've never lost an election. Uh, in the House, I never won one by less than 70%. In the Senate, I won by 18 points and 21 points by talking about bipartisanship, getting things done, and uh, going directly to the voters and letting them know what I'd done and what I felt about the issues. And I think there's room for that, I really do. Um, I, I don't uh, believe that uh, it's as easy as it used to be because, you know, there is more partisanship and, uh, you know, kind of shirts and skins. But as I said a moment ago, I mean, I think our goal as a country ought to be to figure out, yeah, we're going to have different political views and we're going to have, you know, different views on cultural issues. But how do we come together and move the country forward? And I think there's still a role for that. Last question. When you and I were undergraduates at Dartmouth College, here's what it was like. There were bull sessions in dorms late into the night about the Cold War, Vietnam, Watergate. In the fall of 1976, we all gathered in Webster Hall to watch the Carter versus Ford debate on yep. what was then a an amazing technology, this huge screen that you could watch <laughs> on television. Politics mattered. Half of our classmates wanted to be senators. I actually, I envied you until I worked out how much money you've given up <laughs> by being in the Senate. Today, what undergraduate would want to subject himself to the acid bath of politics when there's money to be made in tech and finance? What would you say to, what would you say to some 21 or 22 year old Dartmouth undergraduate about whether, whether why public service still matters? For that matter, why in this era of globalization, the United States still matters as an entity? Why does it matter? Well, you have just laid out what is going to be one of my missions when I get out of this place. Um, I'm gonna set up a, a, an institute, a center, to try to let young people know that uh, there is honor in public service and that you can do it in a way that's uh, high integrity with decency and that you can get things done for your neighbors uh, in ways that are possible in the private sector, uh, certainly, but different, and in some respects more impactful. So that's part of what my, <laughs> my challenge is gonna be, is to say, don't look over there at the shiny object, you know, the constant controversy on MSNBC or Fox News or, or others, but, but instead look at what you can do. Uh, whatever your passion is, if it's healthcare, if it's education, if it's tax policy, if it's you know, looking at some of these tougher issues like the drug, substance abuse problem. I mean, there's opportunities to serve and it's very fulfilling. And so I'm gonna talk about that and hopefully uh, generate some, some interest in it. Um, I mentioned George W. Bush uh, having worked for him um, and his dad, George H.W. Bush. Both of these guys, you know, were in public service for the right reasons. 
And they woke up every morning thinking, you know, what can I do to help move the country forward? Not what can I do to help me? And I think that's, that's honorable and that's still out there. So I would, I would say to those young people, you know, politics may look ugly, but it's really about public service. It's not about politics. And uh, politics is sort of a necessary evil to become elected, to go into public service. Assuming you want to go the electorate route, that's not for everybody. But uh, it's all ultimately about public service, and that is honorable. And to America's role in the world, we continue to be that beacon of hope and opportunity for the rest of the world, no question about it. Uh, if you travel, you see it, but uh, sometimes the media doesn't report it, but people vote with their feet. I mean, look at the couple million people who have come across our border in the last year alone uh, trying to find opportunity here. They should come legally and properly, uh, but it's an, it's an example. People look at the United States still as that leader. And with regard to Ukraine, again, 49 other countries are involved in providing military supplies, but many of them wouldn't be there without us. Uh, I would say most of them would not be because, again, American leadership is what's looked to. Not that we do everything and we should do it as a coalition. It's sort of like the sheriff getting the posse together rather than the world's you know, police officer. Uh, but that's, that's our role as a country. And I mentioned John F. Kennedy earlier. You know, he was meant to give a speech on the afternoon uh, that he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and it was to the Dallas World Affairs Council. And in that speech, uh, he was uh, supposed to have said, uh, we in this generation, by destiny rather than choice, are the watchguards on the walls of world freedom, by destiny rather than choice. I mean, look, we were established as a country based on this ideal of self-government and freedoms and uh, from the start, you know, we had grandiose ideas of what America could stand for uh, uniquely in the world at that time. And look what's happened since. So many other countries have adopted our democratic values and uh, our, you know, search for freedom for all of our citizens. And that, you know, we're imperfect. We've made... We're, we still offer a better deal than China, a better example oh, yeah. than China. Oh, yeah. Not close. Oh, yeah. Not, not, not close. And, you know, the, the, the Chinese example um, is one of, again, under the current presidency of increasing concern about, you know, internal strife in that, in that country and unhappiness with the direction of the country and lack of freedoms because people see it on cable TV or news or on online. So I, I, I think ultimately our model not just prevails, but America continues to, to lead the world. And, and again, it requires us to get our act together here at home in terms of not fighting each other so much but rather figuring out how to work together to get things done to move our country forward. How do you want to be remembered in one sentence? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Just as somebody who, who tried to find common ground and move the country forward. Rob Portman, the gentleman from Ohio. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.